Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Seth Dreyer, who is the vice president of Created Equal. He's originally from Fort Wayne, Indiana, now works out of Columbus, Ohio, and he has been working with Mark Harrington, who you have heard on this podcast before, on creating an organization that goes across the country from campus to campus, stands outside of abortion clinics, and essentially impacts the culture on the issue of abortion. Now, there's been a lot of discussion lately in the United States about uh, Roe v. Wade, because of course the Supreme Court will be examining that soon. The Texas abortion law, the new and very creative six-week abortion ban. But I wanted to talk to somebody who's on the ground speaking with average everyday Americans about abortion and seeking to change their mind. What are those arguments like? To what extent are those discussions impacted by these national discussions? What does the ground view look like as opposed to the bird's eye view? And so I was really thrilled that my friend and Seth Dreyer took the time to come on the show, and this is our conversation. All right, Seth, just to start off, just going to give our, our listeners a bit of an idea of how you ended up full-time in the pro-life movement before we really get into your work on campuses and how that looks during the pandemic. Yeah, so full-time work in the pro-life movement. Well, Jonathan, uh, thanks for having me today. We've known each other for a long time. I believe we both started full-time pro-life work around the same time, and so it's exciting looking back on that. Now, before this, uh, what I was doing before doing full-time pro-life work with Created Equal, I was on a rights life board. I had gone to an abortion facility to pray over many years. I was not sidewalk counseling yet, but I just remember I have this vivid memory being on the street outside an abortion facility, seeing men and women enter, knowing what was happening, and not and praying that God would give me something to do someday. I didn't really see my inroad, what I could do to help babies, help their parents, but I wanted to do something, so I just prayed, God, someday let me do something, and Unbeknownst to me, at that same time in America, CBR already existed, the Center for Bioethical Reform, but I didn't know about them. It wouldn't be until years later I met Mark Harrington, who is now my boss at Create Equal, and I saw that we can actually do something to reach hearts, change minds today. And I just became sold on it, but I have to do what I can to influence the debate now. Create Equal, are the listeners who follow along with this podcast will be a bit familiar with you because we've had your colleague Mark Harrington on the show before. Mark's Mark's lifetime of activism has, has been an inspiration to me just because he's done so many different things. And so Created Equal has actually been involved with quite a few different things. But one of the things I like the most about Created Equal is, is that you're really focused on talking to pro-choice people, talking to people who don't think the same way that we do. And for those who are listening, especially during the last two years, during the pandemic, how has it been reaching out to young people? Because it's kind of been a crazy two years because you've had an election in there. We've, we've had this period where Black Lives Matter was, was like the big focus of, for everyone. How has that affected your sort of day-to-day work reaching out and communicating with young people about abortion? Well, I think what you said is super important, Jonathan, and I'm sure your listeners who understand the debate, the culture, where what's going on, we do not, we do, we do need to teach the choir how to sing, but we don't want to only be preaching to the choir. We exist to make informed dialogue happen with the fence sitters, those not yet committed to a position on abortion. And so it has been a challenge in the pandemic because you can and should have online events teaching people, here's pro-life apologetics, here's how you communicate the case for life. But Create Equal's mission is to take the next step in leading people to then use that apologetic in real dialogue 
with real people, real fence sitters. So it has been a challenge during the pandemic getting to those people because we want to be reaching those people who are not yet, you know, deeply bought into the position, the hardline pro-abortion people. They can certainly change their minds, but I'm looking for the middle of the road fence sitters, those more open-minded. Now, that being said, so we didn't grind our outreach to a halt. We still went to high schools when they were open, went to the colleges when they were open. In the meantime, we did a lot more sidewalk counseling when they were closed, but we did try to look for creative ways to still meet our target audience. And I think we did that. But what is very exciting for us is that most schools are kind of back to normal-ish protocols today. So we've been back to schools on campus this fall and had crowds that are larger than any I've seen at all during the COVID days, kind of back to the pre-COVID era. And I think that that's very critical for us because many people who hopefully we haven't been just waiting, like I said, we found some creative ways to still meet that target audience, but there things are still, things are kind of going back to normal now. And what I've seen is that not only are they back to normal though, people have a lot of pent up energy. They want to engage renewed in the abortion debate, not only because they've been closed up for a while, but as you said, a lot has happened for us in this country. The election, now we have the Texas law which uh, banned abortion after six weeks. And people are very upset that that is still standing, that law right now. And why well, I should qualify how it's banned is a bit unique, right? But we also have the upcoming Supreme Court case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. A lot of people are looking at abortion when they previously were ignoring it. So I find there's a lot of renewed interest in the debate today. And that's a very good thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well, because your organization, like, like CCBR, uses abortion victim photography. And what we find is that when abortion is being discussed on the national level, like you guys have now because of, of the potential of Roe being undermined or falling because of the Texas law, is that our images give us the opportunity to define the word in the minds of those who are thinking about it for other reasons. So that, you know, they're out and about, they've read about the Texas law, you know, they're reading all these pro-choice defenses, they're probably hearing pro-choice defenses, you know, on cable news, if they're watching CNN or MSNBC, they have a lot of people saying, you know, like, like the, the marches that you guys had last weekend, the abortion rights marches in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, everybody's talking about abortion justice, and then here we come with our abortion victim photography, with the opportunity to really define what abortion actually is, who, it's not what are we talking about, who are we talking about when we're talking about abortion. Have you found that these discussions have given you the opportunity with your images to really sort of lay out the, the boundaries of the discussion for people? Yes, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, as, as we've been talking about, our organizations exist to create informed dialogue. We don't, it is always good when people talk about abortion. We want more than just merely chatting about abortion. We want informed dialogue, meaningful conversation. You know, the, the late, great Joe Scheidler, he once told me that when people see abortion victim photos, if they have a functioning heart and if they have a functioning brainstem, they'll be against abortion. Now, he was using characteristic wit there, right? But what he meant there is that we all know some people have, have blocked their hearts, blocked their minds from reason, but that's not everyone. And I think that what's so important about the abortion victim photography is even if someone does not know how to think rationally through a dialogue, through argument, their heart is usually still working. They still have a kind of knee-jerk response to images of injustice. Their mind may try to jump in then and say, okay, wait, no, that, 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 can't be, that can't be a big deal. That baby, I shouldn't care about her. But their heart is pricked immediately in a way their mind may not be. So 
I have found the victim photos become even increasingly more important as the debate not only becomes more common, but as people continue to progress in their inability to think rationally, we've got to provide objective evidence of what abortion is that can kind of reawaken them, reawaken their consciousness as um, King said many years ago, Dr. King said, uh, powerful images can awaken the conscious in a way that sometimes words fail to do so. Yeah, no, it's interesting uh, that you, you you talk about the heart versus the mind, because G.K. Chesterton once said that there is a path through the heart that goes to the eyes and not the mind. And I've always felt that that really applies to abortion victim photography, because I don't know, I know, I know you guys have had this, but we've had like people walk by and just have gone from pro-choice to pro-life seeing the pictures, being like, oh, that's what it is. I'm against it. And that's what it takes. Because they recognize that abortion victim photography isn't just imagery, it's evidence. And it's evidence of something that has specifically occurred. Now, when you're looking at, uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about today is, is you've been discussing things on campuses now for, yeah, I met you in 2010 um, on a campus in Florida. I, I remember the very first day we were debating on campus together. I had a couple of really crazy discussions and it was my very first time debating other students about it. Do you find in your work on campuses over the past, you know, 10, 11, 12 years that the arguments have changed? Do you find people are getting more relativist, less relativist? People are getting more entrenched or less entrenched? Like, have you seen any shift in the way people discuss this issue specifically on campuses over the past decade? I think that some things have changed and some things remain very much the same. I remember that campus, Jonathan, and I remember people like, uh, we had all three of us, I mean, you were involved in an open microphone, Stephanie Gray, Connors was all involved, and I was in the crowd. We were all three involved in this event where we had hundreds of students surrounding us. And I remember people throwing coat hangers that day. And this is super interesting to me because watching the debate change a little bit while still remaining the same, that coat hanger symbol is now at the center of, of crosshairs of a change in the pro-abortion side and what we're seeing. It was just, I believe, last week one of my colleagues sent me this note, and now I've seen it more and more from pro-abortion freelance writers I follow, like Robin Marty. I've seen people trying to distance themselves from the co-hanger because for so long that has been a symbol for the pro-abortion side saying, look, it'll drag us back to the 19, middle, middle of the 20th century where women were having co-hanger abortions in their home, and it was dangerous. That's why abortion must remain legal. But now the pro-abortion side is fearful. Now, I don't want to say Roe v. Wade will crumble. I don't know what will happen. But they're fearful of abortion going back to the states, maybe, and then some states may ban abortion. And they want to make abortion positive. So they've started to distance themselves, saying the Women's March just this past weekend in, 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 uh, in America, a lot of Women's March events said, do not do these things. And one of the things they said, do not do to their attendees was do not bring coat hangers. Do not bring signs with coat hangers on them because we do not want to contribute to at-home abortions being seen as dangerous. We want to distance ourselves now from that imagery because we want women, if abortion is made illegal, to feel very safe doing their own abortions in their homes. That to me is a shocking change of the imagery from the other side. Now, it doesn't mean they're at all against it, home abortions. I mean, they're obviously in favor of abortions, but that's an interesting rhetorical change I've seen. Have you seen any of that up north? That's actually really interesting because I actually had not picked up on that shift, but that does make a lot of sense because one of the interesting things is, is the pro-life movement frequently accuses the pro-choice movement of hypocrisy, and they respond by just becoming consistent, right? We've, we've pointed out often, oh, you guys are championing do-it-yourself abortions or at-home abortions when that was something you hated. Now they're like, okay, fine, we're actually okay with them. We'll stop saying that thing. 
I, I always hate it when they're consistent in that direction. You know, it's it kind of like the, the Peter Singer, the, the folks who are pro-infanticide, right? It's like, well, I know we've always been saying there's no moral difference between the fetus and the baby, but we were hoping you wouldn't move in that direction. You know what I mean? Like, we're hoping that's a morally compelling reason to become pro-life rather than like extreme pro-abortion, including aborting babies just after birth. I, w- I was wondering... On, on on the subject of of abortion pills, because we had we had somebody give a talk some time ago, and they were saying like, will AVP abortion victim photography still be an essential tool if the abortion bill increasingly becomes the most common form of aborting your pregnancy? Now, I, I would answer yes for very obvious reasons. First and foremost, that surgical abortions will unfortunately still be common, even even though they're reduced. Second of all, because abortion victim photography draws attention to the humanity in a way that no other tool can. But third, and this is what I wanted your take on, what we've seen in Canada, and I know that we've seen this also in the UK and elsewhere, is that as women increasingly use the abortion pill, one of the things that's happening is they're coming face to face with their own aborted child in a way they had not previously so we know, and I, and I write about this in my book, um, Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion, that abortionists and abortion workers always work very hard to shield the woman from seeing the consequences of her decision, which is a dead baby. And we have many, many, many examples of them not permitting the woman to see uh, the child that was aborted because they know that if she sees it, she'll recognize uh, more fully what she's done. What you have with the abortion pill, especially when it's taken at home, is that when the baby is passed, especially if the baby's passed in a bathtub, uh, on the floor, or even in the toilet, if they don't flush the toilet and flush the baby in time, is that they're actually seeing the baby. There's nobody there to whisk away the evidence of the fact that a human being's been killed. And there's a lot of trauma happening when people realize, like, this is what I've done. I've, I've, I've actually killed, the, killed my baby. What's your take as somebody who works with abortion victim photography and is interacting with this new issue of, of um, at-home abortions becoming the standard? How do you think that will affect the debate? Do you think that it's going to make abortion harder to expose? Or do you think that because more and more women will see their babies aborted at home, that instead this might have the opposite effect? Well, I think that's a very interesting point there, Jonathan, because, you know, I and you have met them on campus. I have too. people who come up and say, well, that picture is not real. We ask for evidence and they, they can't find any because our abortion pictures are actual photos of real abortions. But a lot of these people who make that charge are making it from a place of ignorance. Not I don't think it's necessarily saying that they have. Yeah, they're making it from a place of ignorance, not from their past experience, because even if they had an abortion, I have met many women who say they ask the abortionist afterward, can I see my baby? And he says, no. And then these women go on this life. Right, exactly. And they're, they're not going home and Googling that night abortion, right? They're often then, they want to avoid it then. And so they have not seen the pictures. So from a place of ignorance, they're making the charge. These are fake photos. So your point is really important. that These are now people who at their own home pass the baby, look at that baby. Now they're going to see our signs. They're going to recognize, oh, this really is real. Because we do have one, one key for, uh, sign that has a baby boarded by a pill abortion. And yes, she looks different from a 20-week fetus. But she, this young, this seven-week embryo is still clearly a human. Now, I think so. that's important. I think your point that this is going to, in one sense, ring more true for people because they'll see the signs, not have that place of ignorance, but have a piece, have now experience. They'll recognize our signs are real. But I do think you point to something else, and that is that we have to do 
a much better job as a movement. I'm not speaking of primarily those using abortion victim photography, but as a movement, we don't always do well. We have a great conclusion abortion is wrong. We sometimes miss some of the premises we have to defend. And one of them, I think, is that when we look at a one-cell zygote, we don't want to look at her and say, well, okay, she looks like a human, because we have to confront this, this problem that we often have we look at ourselves as the normal human and say, those who look like us must be humans. The pro-life movement should never make that case, and consistent people haven't. We have said that humans look different at every phase of development. So we just have to do a better job, I think, explaining this zygote looks like a human zygote ought to look. This five-week embryo may not look like a 20-week fetus, but that's irrelevant. She looks like a five-week fetus ought to look. So we have to do a really good job with our apologetics saying, yeah, newborn, six, six-day-old newborns look different than 20-year-olds, but they're humans, right? Because we all look different in our various phases of development. So killing a five-week embryo might look different than killing a 25-week fetus, but that's irrelevant to their humanity. So I, we just have to do a better job, I think, be consistent in educating people that people do look different based on age, based on disabilities. That will affect how we look, and that's irrelevant to our humanness. Do you increasingly face the argument among young people that it does in fact kill a baby, but who cares? We have the right to do it anyways. So this is, I think, very surprising to me. Before I did full-time pro-life work and I was learning the apologetic, I knew the syllogism, it's wrong to kill innocent humans. Abortion does that, thus abortion is wrong. I knew SLED, which your listeners I'm sure are familiar with. I had all the apologetic thinking, okay, I know what you need to change someone's heart and mind. And I thought, if I could just go explain to everyone, abortion kills a person, they're going to be against abortion. Wow, was that a surprise for me, right? And so I do think that people are becoming, this is one thing I think has changed for the worse. I think people are becoming more comfortable with the fact that it kills babies and that is just okay. I was at University of Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago doing open microphone like you and I participated in years ago at Florida State University. And I had several students, 100 students surrounding me yelling all manner of vile and crazy things like one guy saying the fetus can't be human because she's smaller than his fecal matter and all kinds of really vile things. But what was shocking to me was when one young guy came forward, super chill, consistent, honest guy, that kind of person you referred to a moment ago who becomes consistent in ways we thought we hope they wouldn't become. And what was surprising to me was not what he said, but the audience's response to him. He told me, he said, yeah, the fetus is human. I agree with you. Scientifically, it's clear. From day one, the zygote's a human being. But he said, he was just very bold saying, but all humans are not equal. And I thought, okay, maybe he just kind of tripped himself up. I don't want to trap him into a gotcha moment. I asked him, can you rephrase for me? It sounds like you're saying that not all humans are equally valuable. Do you really believe that? He said, yeah, let me, let me be clear here. The fetus is a human, but not all human beings are equal. We don't have value equally. And I asked him a third time to clarify. And he just clarified, yeah, you humans aren't all equal. It's okay to kill some. And the crowd around him, I was watching them, and they cheered. And I thought 20 years ago on a college campus, if someone had said humans are not all equal, we would have chased them off the campus. But now on college campuses, people were celebrating this ardent lover of inequality and wanted to chase me off, the person saying all humans are equal. I thought, what a shocking movement we have had where the general college student today, I shouldn't say general, I mean, these were the hardened pro-abortion surrounding him who were celebrating him, but still you can have someone stand up and say, human equality is a relic of the past, let's move away from that, and people will cheer him. That is a dangerous movement. But here's why I'm not discouraged. I look at that, I think that is terrifying, that is shocking, and well, let's just go home now. But I think that I'm, in, I'm still think we have an opportunity because while those hundreds of students were cheering this anti-equality zealot, 
I still saw around the hundreds of people, these smaller, quieter groups sitting, listening, watching things and talking quietly to our staff members. And that day we had, you know, 10 people confirm they now are pro-life after being pro-choice. And so I think what we have is still a window of opportunity where we can make this anti-equality, this, this okay with killing that person, the poster child of the pro-choice movement, because they really are. And we can still reach the average Joes and Janes. Their hearts can be moved. So I'm not giving up. But I do think that is a dangerous trend we see. What is the thing that surprised you the most over the last 10 years from when you started full-time to now? Surprised me the most? I think that I honestly have, you know, you asked earlier about have people become more or less morally relativistic. I did not expect to see such a trend away from moral relativism. Now, that doesn't mean they're becoming people who have a Christian worldview, I think today uh, in America, people will still give lip service to moral relativism. But at, at base, a lot of people today believe in clear, objective, moral values and duties. They're just not ones that I would espouse. So now you have to, it is objectively immoral for a employer to deny to pay for certain services. It's objectively immoral for a doctor to refuse to participate in an abortion, so on and so forth. We could talk about many things in the American culture wars, revealing that a lot of people today hold to an objective moral framework. It's just not a good one. So I didn't really see that happening when I started doing this. I thought we'd just go more and more relativistic. And I think that in some ways that's continuing, but other ways we're moving toward a very clear dogmatic view of a religious perspective you must hold in America. It's just not Christianity. It's just not good moral values and duties. It's very objective. And one of them is that people have the objective right it is objectively moral for women to kill their children. That is the view that is held by a lot of people today. And I think I've been surprised by that. Now, again, I think there's a benefit there that my, one, of my first tact, one of my first jobs on a college campus is to get people to agree that objective morals exist. Then I have to bring them to see how abortion violates an objective moral, and that is it's wrong to kill innocent humans. So I have some instant common ground with them. I don't have to get them to agree that morals are not relative. They already are there, but it's, it's, I have to now build the bridge to show them that abortion is wrong. But that has been a surprise to me, the trend away from moral relativism in a lot of people. When we're taking a bird's eye view of the abortion debate, mo most of the listeners here, those who, who aren't activists and, and who aren't involved in the grassroots side of the pro-life movement, will see the abortion debate through the lens of, of cable news, through newspapers, right? They'll think of the Dobbs case. They'll think of the Texas case. They'll think of the marches last weekend. And so that's sort of their view of the abortion debate, you know, looking looking at, looking at the, the bird's eye picture. And groups like ours are on the ground talking to people individually. And to what extent do those interact? Like when you're talking on campus, when you're on the streets, does Roe come up a lot? Does the Texas law come up a lot? Like to what point do those two worlds merge? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think that normally as a cultural engagement group, we don't set out to just start conversations about politics because I'm more interested in what someone believes about the babies whether they are prejudiced against them, whether they recognize their humanity and personhood, that interests me more than their view on any specific law. Uh, now, that's not to say that I disregard or don't believe the law is important. That's just not my primary interest in that dialogue. But I have seen people talking more and more about it on, on campuses, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. I suspect, however, it's, it's from this fear I see among the pro-abortion groups, not the average person on the street, but the pro-abortion groups seem to be whipped up into a frenzy. They seem to be really fearful that Roe v. Wade may actually crumble. And I don't know if that, I'm not trying to say that points to the fact that it will crumble. I have no crystal ball. I have no 
know what will happen. But I do think the pro-abortion left is using this, trying to whip people into a frenzy to be fearful that they are going to lose, whether it be as a fundraiser or for whatever purpose. I do think that we see that happening. So I see a lot of interest, yeah, on these the legal matters that people are hearing about in the news. I see people talking about that more and more on campuses. And I think that does point to the fact that people are still engaged in this. I think that's one important point. When we talk about the changing debate, is it changing, is it not changing? One thing that cannot be overlooked is that we are still here. We're still here, still fighting this. A lot of cultural battles are seen by a lot of people to be lost. We shouldn't give up those battles today, but I think it is very interesting that one battle that is still hot today is abortion. Both sides and even people in the middle still have opinions on abortion, still are consuming news about abortion because the pro-life movement has not and will not go away. We are here for the long haul to help babies, to overcome prejudice against them and to help their mothers and fathers in need. What are a few encouraging stories you could share with the listeners from, let's say, the last couple of months? Because you're out there all the time. Anybody who listens to the show regularly will know that one of the hobby horses that I'm constantly on is explaining that, that cultural change is possible when you think of cultural changes person by person. But you're one of those, you know, at the head of a group out in the street. So maybe share a few of your favorite stories from us from just recently. Yeah, I mean, those are, I, I love sharing the stories. We, after, after we go to outreach, our team will always gather together to debrief what happened. That's where we can swap stories. That's where we get to hear, you know, talk about objections we've heard and, and work through them so we can do a better job at outreach next time. But one, one just I love was this week, and this is a super short one that I wasn't even involved in, but I love the story because we were afterward, we were at, um, this was University of Akron talking to students. And what I love is when I have a really hard day and then the rest of our team has a really good day because when I have a hard day, I can kind of just get stuck on, oh gosh, what are we doing out here? But then I hear their good stories. And someone just came and said, it might've been Marina, I'm not sure. One of my colleagues said, yeah, I had a mind change today. Someone changed their mind on abortion, but it wasn't me. I just asked them what they thought about it. They saw the picture and immediately they said, I didn't realize that's what abortion was. I can't be in favor of abortion. And I love those really short stories that communicate, again, what we've been talking about, which is the power of abortion victim photography. This is also just a more general thing I've noticed here, not a specific story, but I've been noticing more and more that one thing we've been discouraged, people like you and me, Jonathan, who are willing to admit, yeah, we're men, and we're not ashamed to admit it, but we've been uh, often backed into a defensive corner on this. And it's interesting watching the, the pro-abortion side become so awkward and uncomfortable with the idea of this being a women's issue. For so long, they've invested so much capital in abortion being a women's issue. And so people like Seth and Jonathan, they have no role to play in this discussion. But it's so interesting that's changing, right? Because now it's people with uteruses. And so it's just so interesting to me how they can no longer say it's a women's issue. They're backing away from that. So I'm encouraged right now that they're becoming more open, or at least it's not more open to me. What's happening is they're becoming awkward with with this now. They can't say it's a women's issue anymore. So I find that just a little bit encouraging. The one more just a story I'll share because, and I know this is different for you in Canada, and we've been talking mostly about, about the state on college campuses, but we recognize that on college campuses, Many people I talk to, you know, they may be pregnant and not telling me, but for a lot of people, it's still the hypothetical, right? What happens if I were to become pregnant someday? Should I support abortion? That kind of thing. But we also go to abortion facilities where we talk to men and women going in. And I continue to be encouraged by people who, when they see our signs, they hear us reaching out to them, they still change their minds. And I, I have many stories of this, but one just happened, this young girl named Savannah this, this summer 
we were talking to her in, in Columbus and she met one of our, our people and she was coming for an abortion and she went inside to Planned Parenthood. Usually when that happens, you know, I write them off. It's probably going to be over. But she came back out and she went across the street with us, got an ultrasound, and she again decided not to kill her baby. And again, what changed her mind? She, she met us, but she went into the abortion, the pregnancy resource center, saw an ultrasound, saw her baby, images, evidence of the humanity of the babies that still has such great power to change someone's mind, to reach their heart in ways that just words cannot. There are many stories I could tell your listeners all day long. We could maybe revisit some of those again because it's just super important for people to be encouraged. Change is still possible. Is it dark out there? Absolutely. Is it hard right now? Yes, it is. But that does not mean that individual people are not having their hearts and minds changed on abortion and that real babies are not being saved because I can tell you they are every day. I'll share one year was anecdote based on your, your whole it's, it's now pregnant people thing, right? Or birthing persons or, or whatever the, the new lingo is. It's really fun watching them try to think of the right term for four or five tries. Uh, and a friend of mine, I didn't do this. I wish it had been me. It wasn't me. One of my friends was on campus and, and then she, some, some activist stormed up and was like, you know, you know, you have no uterus, no opinion. How do you dare say anything? Like you're a man. And he's like very obviously a man, <laughs> but he stopped and put on his most wounded expression and was like, how do you know? And her, in, her demeanor just instantly changed. Like, I am so sorry. And she like apologized profusely to him. And then he's like, well, like I am a man. You were right. But I'm just saying, like, how do you know, based on the way your worldview functions, and she was livid, but the whole thing just shows how, how ridiculous it is, right? She had made an assumption based on her eyes, and that was correct. And yet, like, instant apologies, and, and we live in such a ridiculous world that you can actually make a feminist apologize for calling a man a man in seconds just when the man with facial hair says he might not be one. It's, it really is It really is a ridiculous world, and I think it emphasizes why we need visual evidence, because this generation isn't particularly rational. No, you're exactly right. I've had, I've had Jonathan, uh, like, kind of this interesting binary experience with, with that very question, when they'll say, you're a man, you don't have a right, and I'll say, well, how do you know, are you assuming in 21st century America that I'm a man? And either they say they get really mad, like, they can see the frustration, because suddenly they're now at this difficult spot where they have their conscious worldview idea that you can identify however you want to identify with their experience, as you said, using their eyes, looking at me, recognizing, okay, I, I am a man. They're in this difficult spot where they have to either go with reality or go with the worldview they want to hold. They can't do both at the same time. And that's frustrating for them. And they become frustrated. The other person, when I use this, it's exactly what you just said. I've had the same experience, a girl yelling at me, angry, saying, you're a man. And when I ask her how she knows, she becomes so penitent, so, so apologetic, so repentant before me. And I, it's kind of interesting where I, I, I want her to be okay with using her eyes to see how reality works. But I also, it's a great tactic for us to get them into this position of being, what's the word I want to say? Just being not so on, on the offense attacking, but being a little more calm. Not so aggressive. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, no, it really is. It's, it, it's, it's a really weird de-escalation tactic. It does make me feel old at 33 just because if you had told me that first day I was on campus when I met you that that would be a thing that would work at some point. Like back then, that was kind of like a snarky joke that conservatives would tell, right? But unfortunately, you know, like, you know, the Babylon Bee always points out, they're always just a couple of months ahead of the curve. You know, the crazy, the crazy stuff always ends up happening. I guess 
A final question I want to ask you while I have you, because I know a lot of, I get asked this a lot, and I know a lot of listeners are probably curious. You work full-time on the pro-life movement. You've done so for a decade. You do so with the support of your, your lovely wife, Aubrey, who's also a rock star homeschooling mom. What's it like being a dad with a wife and kids and then also doing this all day, like dealing with the craziest things our society has to offer, but also dealing with one of the, the darkest issues that that affects our society. So what's it like balancing that as a family man? You know, that's a very interesting question. I, I think that it is, it's truly just devastating. You know, I remember being early in the pro-life movement, Aubrey and I were just engaged and then newly married. And I had some, some people I knew who told me, it's very, fa- they, they said to me, it's interesting, Seth, how much you care about abortion because you don't have kids yet. And my thought was, why would that matter? It's a human rights issue. I'm a human. I should care either way. And I still hold that view, but it is very true that the experiences I've had now as a father give me just this, it, it doesn't at all change whether abortion is right or wrong but it deepens my grief over it. As I see not only these children killed, that is the objective reason abortion is wrong, but I I see these fathers who are making these decisions to abandon their children. It just hits me in a new way. So I will say in some ways, I've not become less sensitive to this. I've become just grieved now, not only of the human rights abuse, but also the lack of responsibility on the part of fathers that hits me in a new way. But I will say, I think that it's interesting. People do ask, like, what is it like raising kids in the movement? And can you do this full time? And I just think, um, I think it's really a powerful opportunity for our children. When I come home during the day and we're around the dinner table and they ask, how was your day today, dad? And we have conversations. While I'm not trying to traumatize my children with gory, grisly details, we do talk about the fact that there are, that there are babies in the womb and that people reject their humanity, their personhood. And we can really talk about that. Like, so what would you say to someone if they told you this person who looks different from us, that she's not a person like you are? And so I, I'm able to kind of weave my experiences into our conversations around the table to hopefully be building up soldiers for the kingdom. Because I think that I think a lot like, what is the world my kids grow, grow up, the world they're going to grow up in, what will that be like? And I think it's looking very, very dark for them. And Aubrey and I talk a lot about how we grieve the fact that their world's very different in the same way that my parents, I'm sure, grieve the fact that the world I would grow up in would be different from them. But I think about one great privilege, and that is that, or I should say honor, I suppose, since privilege is now an outward today. But a great honor is that I think it's far less likely that my kids will grow up to be fake Christians because they're in a world now where there's no capital, no cultural capital to being a Christian. You only have to lose culturally in the eye of most people by saying you're a believer. And so it's very unlikely my kids are going to give lip service to Christianity. They'll either be bought in or be far away from it. And I don't want to raise fake Christians. I don't want to raise people who are soldiers for the, for the pagan uh, anti-Christian world either. I want to raise Christian soldiers, people who are compassionate warriors, fighting for good while being loving and gentle. That's what I, who I want to raise. And I do think that my role in the movement, it, it's kind of like it, it forces me to be working toward that with them in our conversations. I think that every Christian in America today it, it should recognize that they are, their worldview puts them at odds with the dominant mainstream dogmatic left that is rising. However, it's easy to maybe kind of pretend that's not the case. When you're in the movement like we are, we can't pretend. We're forced to interact with that left every day. And so I think that uh, we're, we're preparing our kids in a way that everyone should be. We're being forced to by, by the vocation Aubrey and I have chosen. I think that's a good thing. Not always comfortable, but it's a good thing.
Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about all this stuff. It's been my honor. Thank you, John, for having me. Hopefully talk to you again soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that is my conversation with Seth Dreyer of Created Equal. Thank you so much for joining us this week. You can head over to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab if you want to subscribe to listen to future shows or if you want to go back and listen to past shows. Thanks so much for joining us and we do hope you'll join us again next week.